0: Uh, let me just uh, i mean i don't want to derail our conversation but i will say i decided that we would have a drinking game every time bridget mentions uh the contextual interview we're just gonna take take a drink all right
1: yeah you better get that bailey's going in that (laughs) (laughs) coffin. substances are in the contextual interview to ask about
0: drink up all right Hello and welcome, everyone. Welcome to the Integrated Care Podcast. My name is Naftali Serrano. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of the Collaborative Family Healthcare Association. And we are glad to have you here for our kickoff podcast for 2020. Um, Apropos with how we have been sort of eking our way through the early weeks of of, uh, 2020, uh, our podcast team is here on a, well, I can't really say cold on my end, but some of our podcasters are in cold, crummy weather. Uh, I see some thumbs up here on the video that you cannot see. I, I am actually not in cold, crummy weather. I'm in sort of weird spring, mid-January weather in North Carolina, so I can't really complain. But my empathy is to our fellow podcasters here. Let's uh, let them introduce themselves from all the corners of the United States, and um, I'll tease uh, ahead of time before we do these intros. We've got a great podcast for you guys today, really excited to talk about uh, geriatrics and how we work with older adults in primary care teams. I just can't wait to get to the conversation, but before we do that, let's let the folks say hi. So Bridget, you are the furthest flung of all of us. Say hello to the folks out there.
1: Hi, uh, this is Bridget Beachy. I'm a clinical psychologist out here in the state of Washington, Yakima to be specific. And yeah, it's super snowy out there. Had to leave the Prius on the street below because I couldn't get up the hill oh, uh, nice. last night. So um, my husband had to rescue me in our no. Land our Land Rover, which is a lot better equipped for snow. So, uh, But I made it to work and everything's everything's good. Well, actually, I didn't take the Prius. We took the Land Rover. <laughs> um, <laughs> So here, safe and sound.
0: And I forgot that Grace also had a our usual little uh, question of the day, which was uh, apropos weather, apropos. Although Grace, you did give us the question of the day, so that we wouldn't talk about the weather. Ironically that's true. enough,
2: that's the whole point of this question of the yes. day. You know? <laughs> well, more than the weather, let's talk about what, how we cope. So, what do you like to do to stay warm on a gross cold day? Is that for me?
0: Yeah, yeah, go ahead, Bridget, okay. given, given that you you obviously have very recent experience with what you do.
1: Yeah, I think uh, definitely turning on the fireplace uh, as soon as I get home uh, is this step number one and have a bunch of blankets in this certain part of my uh, living room. So it's always kind of the same thing. Flip on the fireplace, grab the blanket and get nice and warm.
0: And then turn the Laker game on, as we learned at that uh, last month's podcast.
1: Yeah, I can't talk about it. <laughs> They gave the game away yesterday, so it's it's a sore subject right now. But I mean they are like thirty they've won like thirty three games and
0: Yeah, you can't really complain.
1: If you would have seen the game, you you would have you'd be complaining, but it's okay. (laughs) And if you loved LeBron the way I love LeBron and you saw the game, you'd be like, Oh god, it was horrible. Anyways, move on to somebody else.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's a double whammy of having your car stuck at the bottom of the hill and then watching your team lose. That's, exactly and it's exactly. outside yeah yeah uh, I'm I am happy to uh, hear another voice on our podcast today that we haven't heard for uh, quite some time just for logistical reasons so amber say hello again to the folks out there
3: good morning everyone I am super happy to be Back in action on the CFHA podcast, starting fresh in 2020, I am joining you from just outside Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, where we are actually having a spring-like weather, including large gusty winds. Really thought I was gonna even lose my travel mug from the top of my car as I was heading into the office this morning. But uh, to answer Grace's question, I am a huge tea connoisseur, uh, so when the weather is little crummy or not so nice the only thing that really can cheer me up is a good cup of tea it has to be loose leaf of course and it has to be organic of course and I get my little tea ball out and I heat up my water on the stove in a kettle because my British grandmother would have a fit if I heated it up in the microwave um, and pour myself a nice warm cup of tea and that always makes me feel warm and cozy on the inside.
0: Wait a second. What's the difference between water heated up in a microwave versus in a kettle?
3: Well, if you ask my mom, she would tell you that the water tastes funny. If it's heated up in the microwave, it is just, it ruins the taste of the water and it changes, you know, the structure of the water. And that's just not the right way to do it. And also, she feels the water does not stay warm as long if you heat it up in the microwave and you're drinking tea like a true British person, you're going to drink that tea piping hot.
0: Wow, she's given this some serious thought.
3: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I remember when she came over to my first apartment and uh, I was like, do you want a cup of tea, mama? And she was like, yeah, yeah. And um, so I got two mugs out, filled them with water and put them in the microwave. And the look on her face, I was like, what did I do? She's like, Amber Lynn. That's my middle name. She's like, I thought I taught you better. And I was like, oh, no. So I have never committed that sin ever again in my life because (laughs) there is nothing worse than disappointing your mama.
0: Oh, my. Wow. Okay. Hmm. I will never put a cup of hot water in the microwave without thinking of that now.
3: Yep, yep. You got to get yourself a kettle, and if you're going to do it, do it right.
0: Yeah. Well, if there are any chemists out there who can verify that water (laughs) transmutes in in a microwave, uh, please uh, contact us at info at cfha.net and let us know, because that would be fascinating.
3: And we would like to know, but I will never tell my mama. Yeah.
0: (laughs) All right, and Grace, uh, folks have heard your voice already, but answer your own question. And let them know where you are.
2: Yes, this is Grace Wilson. I'm behavioral medicine faculty at Integris Great Plains Family Medicine Residency in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. It seems like our weather always moves, you know, west to east. And so um, I, I'm sure that this cold blast that I'm getting today is headed in your direction, Um We do have cold weather today. And my favorite way to warm up is a cozy, warm cardigan. So I have them in all different colors. I'm wearing a new one today. It's kind of a greenish, blue, gray. It's my favorite color. And it's just perfect, warm, snuggly way to go.
0: Great. Uh, yeah, so I, this is a hard question for me to answer currently in North Carolina. Like Amber, the entire East Coast is really having this really warm weather. And then North Carolina in general has pretty wimpy winters in general. The most that we get are ice kind of ice events that shut down everything. But compared to what you get, Bridget, and even what you get, Amber, uh, yeah, they're pretty weak. So, you know, however, when it gets mildly cold, <laughs> um, you know, I, I think my thing to do is uh, kind of similar to what you talked about, Bridget. I sit by a fireplace. Uh, it is not a natural fireplace. It's a gas fireplace. So it's kind of, it's not as, not as cozy, but it's, it's nice and warm. Sit by a fireplace and just get a nice uh, book and uh, sort of enclose myself oh, in my thoughts and the warmth, and that makes me feel better. So, that's that's what I do on nice cold days. All right, so Grace, you'll have to come up with some better non-weather.
2: Warm, <laughs> no, uh, I'll, I'll make a note of that for next time.
0: <laughs> yeah, because we just we just violated our rule here. In <laughs> All right, we've got a great podcast. As I said, we're going to be talking about geriatrics and integrated care here today. Before that, however. I wanna make sure to uh just sort of give some updates. And one really important update relative to this podcast is uh actually the the about the lead. So um in the first I forget how long have we been doing this? Does anybody remember how long we've been doing this? Is this almost we started two years in ago?
2: January of twenty eighteen.
0: Yeah, that's right. I thought I thought so. Uh, oh well happy so,
3: anniversary, you guys.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's right. Happy anniversary. It's a couple of years doing this, and I uh, have been the, the main lead person, and I'm gonna continue on with the podcast, and uh, I will make as many of these podcasts as I possibly can, but um, in my role as CEO, there's obviously lots of things that get in the way of that, and I wanted to make sure that we could have a consistent lead presence on the podcast, and so Grace Wilson, our Oklahoman uh, representative, has kindly agreed to be our new podcast editor, so, uh, thank you, Grace. She, so she'll be the voice that you hear leading us in. She'll be helping us organize our topics, our special segments, etc. So I want to let you guys know that, and and also just to publicly thank Grace for all her work over the years and going forward in 2020.
2: Thank so. you, Natalia. I'm really excited. This is um, it's been so fun to do this podcast and have these conversations and
0: have
2: the opportunity to speak through projects and big ideas and topics. as certainly one of the areas that I love. I'm definitely a, like coming up with ideas and topics is kind of my, my forte. So I'm really excited to be in this role. Thank you for thinking with me.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and for those of you out there, uh, especially in CFHA land, um, who have uh, ideas and thoughts, reactions even to what we uh, produce here in our podcast, or any of our media outlets on integratedcarenews.com, please let us know at info at cfha.net. We're always happy to hear um, from the many listeners that we've uh, gathered over the years. So that's the first big thing. Um, A couple of other quick news and notes items that I have for you that are really exciting relative to integrated care. Um, So pleased at the response so far to our integrated care map. So guys, have you seen the integrated care map? Yeah. Yeah, and I think uh, I know uh, Bridget and her colleagues uh, registered their site. Uh, Grace, is your site registered on the map?
2: I don't think I'm registered yet.
0: Okay, Ooh. all right. Behind, uh, behind. You gotta
1: put yourself on the map.
0: Yeah. You gotta be on the, the map. map. <laughs> <laughs> in fact, I'm gonna pull it up here and see do we have anybody in Oklahoma? Because you might be the first. Yeah, so we don't have anybody in Oklahoma right now, so you may be the first. So if you go to integratedcarenews.com and click on the map link, you will see something exciting, which is um, a visual representation of all the sites in the United States that are currently registered uh, providing some form of integrated care, and you can click in and you can see what kind of services each of those sites offer, what models they use, how many patients they serve, how many sites they have, and we're really using this, uh, where there's lots of ways to use this, uh, but, but one of the primary ways is advocacy. It's just really letting people know the breadth and extent of, of integrated care across the United States. So uh, if you go to this site, you'll see it. Uh, if you have a site, uh, you can submit real easily with a link. It's an online quick form, uh, put in your information, and then we process that. So go to integratedcarenews.com and click on the map link for that. The other thing that uh, we're excited about is our upcoming conference in Philadelphia. And so we're hard at work on getting uh, all that going, but I just wanna give you the heads up that the call for proposals is coming out soon. So um, just be ready with your ideas. Um, It'll be out by the end of this month and it'll be open through March, mid-March. So be ready and then put on your calendars Uh, that conference time, uh, which is going to be in October uh, in Philadelphia. For more information, all you got to do is go to integratedcareconference.com. Now, one of the things that's sort of related to the conference that we're excited about, obviously, collaboration is in our name. And one of the things that we uh, have been able to do um, is generate some good collaboration with other associations. A couple of psychiatry associations that I'll just highlight here Uh, We're going to have a collaboration with the American Association of Community Psychiatry that's actually hosting a conference right around the time that we are. And we're going to have some overlap of some presenters from their conference. Many thanks to the folks at the uh, AACP Um, and starting to have some conversations with folks at the Association of Liaison Psychiatry, ACLP is the acronym, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting the name it might be the American College of Liaison Psychology. But ACLP, uh, and we have been just having some preliminary conversations as well about how we can um, uh, partner, and we, we're about partnership. So I'm bringing this up just to say if there are folks out there who are thinking, hey, we'd really love to have uh, our association partner, please let us know. We're happy to connect and uh, collaborate. This is just a couple of the partnerships that we have uh, developed for this year. So those are all the news and notes items. Yeah. Let's launch right into our uh, conversation of the day, which is geriatrics and primary care. So uh, I think that the first thing I wanna launch into here with is is, uh, why is this important? I know this is sort of feels like an obvious question, right? But I just wanna level set everyone as to why we're even talking about uh, geriatrics. Why, Why is it important? So we'll start with you, Bridget what is it about geriatrics that we need to be paying attention to?
1: I'd say everything. Um, Working in family medicine, uh, it's kind of interesting. There's a lot of uh, generations um, at this point, uh, being in the same clinic for almost six years, you see uh, grandparents, great-grandparents all the way down. uh, So you can really kind of get a feel for the whole family system, so to speak. Uh, And then the challenges, as well as It's not only challenges, there's positive aspects as well um, that older adults face. Uh, Again, being in primary care, you're going to have a lot of folks dealing with chronic conditions. Uh, There could be major life changes uh, with regards to caretaking roles. Um, I think we had mentioned this uh, prior to the podcast, but um, older adults who are raising children uh, have had lots of great grandparents and grandparents who are raising little ones. Uh, and then a lot of the folks are taking care of their, their parents, so they might be in mid-60s, early 70s, and have um, parents in the 90s that they're taking care of. And it's just a very rich population, um, super fun to work with. I always learn so much working with the older adults and they're, for the most part, I know this is generalizing, um, very appreciative of having that uh, team aspect um, where they get their care from their physician and they're able to chat with the BHC uh, on their terms, on their needs. They don't have to necessarily enroll in therapy. And the feedback that I've gotten from folks is, I really like that you're here and I can come and just do what I need to do. You help me sort my, my own, you know, kind of my own thoughts, act as a sounding board, and then I'm good to go. And I'll let you know if I need something else. So it's just very, very rewarding and enriching uh, to learn from these folks and to be available for them when they need it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, Grace, you had uh, this topic area, something that you brought up for us uh, this month. Uh, I'm curious for you, what brought this to mind and why why uh, uh, paying particular attention to geriatric care is, uh, is important for primary care teams? Uh-oh, we've lost Grace's uh, audio. So we'll move on to Amber. So Amber, give us a sense of what your response is when you think about why geriatric, uh, why attention to geriatric care is important. And I, the reason I raise this is because in many ways, um, it, it's really almost a new lens to think about. We've traditionally for many years, even though geriatrics as a specialty has been around for, for a while now, um, we've traditionally thought of just, well, you, you're a kid and then you're an adult, and then it's just this one continuous sort of thing and there's nothing different about if you're just just older you're just older right you're just an older adult
3: one of the things that i've come across um because i i put out there that you know i specialize in medical family therapy so even when i'm working in my private practice setting a lot of older adults find me because they have chronic health issues, um, and then they find out that I specialize in relationship and um, and sex therapy, and you know somewhere along the line we end up talking about how their medical issues affect their ability to be intimate with their partners, um, and that's kind of been a very eye opening experience for me as a young professional because it wasn't really something I had ever plan to go into or to to talk about or to focus on. And in this, I have really found such a rich vibrant population of people who are kind of living the third chapter of their lives, so to speak, you know, they were young, and then they raised families. And now, you know, their kids are adults, they're retired, and they're kind of rediscovering who they are. Um, They have new interests in connecting with their partners. So I think that just being able to meet their needs as human beings is something that's really, really important. And it's something that does get overlooked especially because there are so many health concerns. We kind of forget to ask sometimes about how are your relationships? How is your intimate life? Um, Are you enjoying your life? What kinds of hobbies or activities are you involved in, you know, when you're not going to the doctor's office? Because, you know, that does take up a lot of their time, but they also want to formulate a new identity outside of that. And in working with that population, I've really, really enjoyed being able to kind of get to know that. And I've also found it really inspiring personally um, as somebody who's a little bit on the younger end of the spectrum, because I'm like, wow, like there is this whole third chapter here. And people are really kind of living their best life, you know, in their 65 plus years, Um, even if it does include taking care of, you know, grandchildren or their parents. There's a very unique set of circumstances that I think we need to make sure that we're equipped to meet their needs in those times.
0: Yeah. And I think both of you have alluded to sort of an underlying undercurrent that I want to sort of give voice to, which is our, our sort of Bias or thoughts about what uh, getting older means. And it's interesting that I think one of the reasons why we often don't talk about care for older adults is that we are kind of afraid of that stage of life. It's a little bit of a black box. And sort of some of the things you talked about, Amber, it's like, we're surprised that older adults have relationships and sex lives and, and have wants and needs and uh, are continuing to grow and develop in different ways. Um, It's almost like we think that at some point you cross a threshold and you're no longer, I don't know, (laughs) relevant or just, and I think that bias is part of what then blinds us to some of the unique needs of that stage, but also to to your point, Bridget as well, uh, just the, the blessing and the riches of that stage of life. And so I I think, I think there's some really good stuff that comes personally when you do engage this population effectively, uh, and then some, some clinical richness, uh, along with that as well. So, yeah. So let's see if we can get Grace back here. Grace, are you back with us? crossing fingers i don't know let's see can you hear me yes grace is back with us
2: okay it would it
0: would would have it would have been really awkward to have this conversation without the without the originator of the conversation uh you
2: know we we all just deal as it comes like you said earlier we're just roughing it through
0: 2020. yeah this is (laughs) this is 2020 in a nutshell right now
2: Uh, So you had asked sort of what interested me in this topic, and our clinic serves a really high-needs population, and I'm always thinking about who are our most vulnerable people. And we serve a lot of older adults who, um, it's, it's just like what you guys are saying, it's not that they are not facing the same problems as everyone else, they have issues about their sexuality and issues about their health and issues about their finances, but in some ways it seems compounded. So, you know, many of our older, our population at our clinic have a lot of financial issues. They're on very limited incomes. Many of them are raising intergenerational families. So they have, they're raising their grandchildren or they're caring, you know, about adult children that still need help or still have concerns. And so they're supporting these intergenerational families, even as their income is perhaps less than it has ever been in the past. Um, and then, you know, the, some of the things that come with aging, as far as you know, more likely to have multiple health conditions, more likely to have limited mobility, and some of these other concerns that just add these—it's com- like a factorial complication for them, kind of is exponential. And so, I was thinking the other day. Well, really, what what prompted this for me was I was looking through our content that we've done in the past, and we had a pretty good. Pediatrics episode, which we can link to that in the show notes. there's thinking you know, we need to think about the other end of the lifespan as well, and think about our geriatric population. And so I had posed this question to our group, and you guys, I liked the way that y'all responded because it was like people immediately came to your mind. And um, you said, "Oh, I had this case, and I'm dealing with this issue with this other patient." And so I was wondering if maybe you guys could share a couple of those cases that you that came to mind for you immediately that brought through some of these issues and maybe if we talk through in that case-based kind of way, it'll just be a, a real way to attach the stories to the meaning of what we're sharing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was so glad when you brought it up because I've had several patients in primary care recently uh, with issues spanning... Uh, unique, I think, to this stage of life. Um, so I'll, I'll present a case that's a conglomeration of a couple of them so that, you know, it feels more comfortable as far as uh, confidentiality and all of that. But uh, I, I've had several patients um, who are 80 plus, so this is, this is later, later uh, life, who are living with ex-spouses um, for uh, basically convenience is a probably the best way to put it um it's more complicated than that but um it's clear that these folks are not living with their spouses they're not romantically involved uh, they don't sleep in the same bedrooms uh, but they share finances they share certain um, aspects of their lives uh, like family visits at times and things like that um, and yet they're living with ex-spouses because it's a vulnerable time of life for them. Um, as you said, grace, mobility is an issue. So, for example, one of my patients uh, just told me this week, he's like, well, she helps me if I fall and, and I need someone to help me to get up. And he helps her by going and picking up dry cleaning and things like that. But it's complicated because um, uh, they, there's still all those issues that led them to separate. And, and to uh, essentially uh, divide their lives. Those issues are still there and they're living with those. Um, and, and I think given the economy, uh, the economy specific to uh, older adults, I should say, right? Because we hear all this sort of pretty good news about how the economy is doing pretty robust. But for segments of the population like older adults, it doesn't mean that, that, that the economy is doing great for them. So for a lot of these folks, they struggle with, Uh, finances Um, and so that primarily then forces these folks to then have to co-live in a space when ideally i think they 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 wouldn't be doing that so that's one of the things i want to throw that out to the team as well to think about like so again this presents in primary care as depression um as uh anxiety but underneath it it's really i'm living with my spouse i hate My spouse, but I have to be in this space. Right. So, so I mean, chew on that, guys. (laughs) How do do you work through that? And, and and, and let me, let me add one layer of dynamic there, too, as well. Right. And, you know, I'm not a super young guy anymore. I'm, I'm midlife at this point, 44. uh, (laughs) Talking to an 80 year old guy uh, or female. Uh, they, and it just I'm just throwing that dynamic in there where there's a sense of like I'm supposed to be giving you advice about this. It just kind of feels a little weird, right? So, yeah, chew on that.
1: And Nefteley, you know, I'm one trick pony in this situation as always. <laughs> uh, that's why. Right, consistent... Wait, wait,
0: wait, wait! Before you go, okay. I I did forget about this because I, I I heard the podcast, the last podcast on sleep, which was awesome by the way, and I decided that we would have a drinking game. Every time Bridget mentions uh, the contextual interview, we're just gonna take <laughs> take a drink. All right?
1: Yeah, you uh, better get that Bailey's going in that coffin. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I, I think that's starting with the contextual interview. The minute I walk in, um, it, it's just it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna lay that out there from from the very beginning because the very first question is the living situation, and I want to know everybody in that home and the relationship too that person that's, that's already going to kickstart everything. Um, and I feel like when you're able to, like you're saying, Niftali, get past, okay, they fill out a PHQ or GAD seven, it's elevated instead of going in there and being like, okay, tell me about your depression. We're going to address depression. It's like, tell me about your life. Tell me about the person that you are. I want to learn about you and then they'll tell you. And then I feel like that addresses, uh, two different things that are going on one is you're able to uh, conceptualize back to them that I don't know if this is straight up depression. This is very contextually impacted by the situation. And secondly, when they tell you about their life from their living situation to their relationship, to their family, to their friends, to their income, to what they like to do for fun um, and their spirituality, which is the first part of the contextual interview, I don't have to come up with advice. They're gonna give themselves, I'm just steering a conversation at that point and most of the time that's what i was saying earlier is they know what they need to do there's it, there's so much richness and there's so much wisdom and i straight up tell them that i'm transparent like you know i'm in my early 30s it's a different thing i'm not going to sit here and tell you what to do you know what to do i'm here to be on the journey with you and it's it's it feels a lot more authentic that way at least for for me in my opinion you just find that i do a whole lot less
2: advice giving and a whole lot more exploratory question asking, <laughs> um, you know, processing with the person, what's the hardest part of this for you? What are the ways that it is helpful versus what are the, the, the pain points for it? Are there ways that we can maybe replace um, replace the help that you're getting? Are there alternatives that we can explore? But if it really is that you're stuck in this situation and this really is the best, okay, well, let's find out what's the most Part, what's the hardest part about it and how can we take those apart is it that you need to be protecting more time for yourself is that you need that you need to be connecting with people who you do have a good relationship with and who value and don't undermine you is it that you need to have better boundaries so that when that ex-spouse starts bringing up issues in the past you can say nope that's you know that's over i'm not going to talk to you about that anymore and so figuring out what are like I think sometimes we just, the I, you can't, I know this is audio. I always do these gestures. I have the, I have my hands right up in front of my face. <laughs> so it's like, sometimes the problem is so close mm-hmm. in front of us that we can't see past it. And I think just a, a bit of problem solving exploration processing with the patient really can make a huge difference. And that, I mean, I feel like maybe the redundancy for me, not contextual interview, but process over content. You know, I think I've said this before. It's always oh, my interns are with me from May until April. And it's always about late February that they come to me and they say, I don't know how to treat depression. And I'm like, what are you talking about? You've been treating depression all year. But it's that they get stuck on, I need to have like basically a flow sheet, this problem, this intervention, and I need to know XYZ, everything exactly. Like, you have all of the tools. The specific problem that the person is coming up with—that's the content. And yes, we should be informed about, you know, what what are the best practices? And what does the literature say? But if you fall back on process, you're never going to go wrong. If you fall back on talking through, um, you know, what is this like for you? What are the parts that are difficult? What are the parts that are working? Let's think through potential solutions. Or talk about acceptance. Or talk about the ways that this, you know, has a role in your life overall. Those questions are going to be useful for anybody with any problem and you're not going to go wrong with them.
0: Yeah, that's, that's real reassuring because I actually went in very similar directions with this individual after, after I got over the idea that I needed to have answers. uh, I I was able to just sit with and say, well, what does this mean about what you, what's important to you, right? And, and how you make that a priority in your life and how you set good boundaries around that so that you can continue to maintain your own integrity while you're coping with this uh, uh, stressful situation.
3: And I do also want to point out that, you know, something that all of you have kind of touched on is the acceptance piece, because that is something that I feel like we can really help, you know, guide people through and, you know, hold their hand and support them. And I like how Bridget said that, you know, she reminds people that she's there to kind of be on this journey with them and one of the things that I've kind of come up against so to speak with working with you know older adults is you know there is um, some grieving there is some loss whether it's from a physical health standpoint or a mobility standpoint or you know who would have thought that I would be 70 and living with my ex-wife like who I can't stand but I have to live with her like how much does that suck. And really just kind of sitting with that and validating that experience for them, which, again, you know, as a young person, I, I don't know that. But, you know, as a practitioner, I am absolutely able to hold that space and to validate their feelings and to help them be able to come to terms with, yes, you know, these are all very realistic things that are happening. These are all facts in your life. However, you know, you do get to decide how you feel about them. If you feel horrible and negative and this is the worst thing ever, then yeah, you know, it's going to be a lot of doom and gloom. But if you're able to kind of like flip it on its head and like, you know, even though I, you know, hate Betty Sue because, you know, she cheated on me years ago and I never want to see her face ever again. Like, at least she's around and she cares enough to like live with me and take care of me and we can help each other. Um, So just even adding that reframe in there, regardless of what the situation is, I feel like sometimes helps older adults to kind of get out of fixating on you know what they wanted or what they used to have and really coming to terms with where they're at and then approaching it from a place of gratitude I
1: just want to throw out a a question for you guys um, that it sparked that do you think that a lot of the ways in which a lot of us are trained in this kind of um, diagnosis focused manner really does not equip a clinician for being able to again it's not about saying that we don't know the criteria for depression. It's not about saying that we're not gonna learn the most evidence-informed interventions, but it's this idea that we're in the room and we're trying to find the pathology versus we're in the room and just trying to, I mean, honestly, drop everything and just imagine what would it be like if you lived in this situation? If you were, like you said, living with Betty Sue who cheated on you years ago and uh, you don't have the finances to do what you need to do, you're dealing with mobility issues, um, I mean, just just drop all the cl- clinical stuff for just a second and just feel it. I don't know. I feel like some clinicians, they get scared and thinking, well, now I'm not doing science, but um, science without heart means nothing, I don't think.
0: Yeah, and actually, this, is a, this particular case or cases that I'm referring to here uh, drive that point home because uh, these were handoffs provided to me for depression and one of the questions was whether we should have these folks on antidepressant medications, and in, and in neither case uh, was any of what I was uh, gathering in the room what we would term sort of classic depression. It, it, it was really more, uh, the the functional uh, definition made more sense than a label of depression uh, for these individuals. It It wasn't really depression. It was a mix of, and Amber, you touched on a bit of it too. There's some grieving there. There's some loss uh, involved. There are some real deficits that the person's dealing with as far as mobility and pain. Um, and then of course, there's the psychosocial issues involved. And uh, none of that says uh, fluoxetine is going to be terribly helpful. Um, and none of it says that that uh, label of depression is going to help me understand that individual. In fact, this is another aside here, but I'd like to have a whole podcast on how we can get rid of the DSM. <laughs> oh. this is
1: I'll be there. Right. Let's start Let's, a movement. Get, get your drinks ready. Yeah, right?
0: <laughs> uh, yeah.
2: No, yeah that, I,
1: I want to expand on
2: what you said about grief and loss, though, because yeah. One of our faculty is a geriatrician, and he loves to tell a story about um, a group that was gathered together of experts and physicians and researchers. And their task was to come up with the the single word that most describes aging. Um, And they thought about a lot of things and a lot of words and nothing quite fit until finally they landed on the word loss. Um, And just that over time, as you're aging, there is And it's it's not even necessarily always a horrible thing, but just just a loss over time and a bittersweet, you know, the more you're here, um, the more time that you have, the more people you will lose, the more relationships, the more pieces of your past. And then the other pieces we're talking about, like mobility, sometimes it could be aspects of identity. Um, you know, retirement is a thing that people celebrate greatly when they're able to retire. But even then, sometimes there's a lack, a loss of identity that comes with that or a loss of routine and purpose. And so thinking about, um, you know, how how can we shepherd people through the grieving process and even maybe help them identify when there is a component of grief, when sometimes it's very obvious, you know, they're coming in and they've lost a loved one, they've lost, you know, a long-term spouse or a, a child. But uh, other times, the loss is a lot more subtle and they may not recognize that grief is a central component to what's going on. And so I was thinking about that when you were saying, you know, these phq 9s are elevated, but it doesn't sound like typical depression. One thing I think we should have in our differential is, is this more grief than depression? Um, is this more related to some kind of loss that they're having, than a you know typical organic major depressive episode?
0: Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, uh, that you know specific to the cases that I'm referencing, another aspect of the loss and the grieving was actually loss of specifically loss of friends and loss of of their social networks. Um, when you start out living, your friends and your social networks. It's hard um, because it's really hard to recreate or keep those social networks alive um, and well nurtured. So that's often with uh, the folks that I'm working with um, one of the complaints is it's just really hard to meet people. And the people that I do meet have limited mobility themselves. And so getting together is hard. Um, Transportation is hard. uh, and 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 then with with that comes not just sort of formal loss but also frankly uh, boredom um, there, there's a lot of boredom that that uh, people live with when they are just unable to do the things that they they are typically doing because of mobility and pain issues um, and sometimes also financial issues and things like that and so I think I think what I, uh, like consistent with our conversation, I often will in those situations spend time uh, just acknowledging those losses and and voice, giving voice to them. Um, while I'm also pointing out the uh, resilience and at times, if possible, doing a little bit of problem solving around some of those, right? Because that's part of it. Just like any other individual who gets stuck in some sort of a life situation, sometimes your problem solving skills get stuck, and you need some sort of brainstorming to think, well, what can we do with um, uh, to really maximize uh, your life and to feel engaged with your life. So again, any of these issues, I think are things that can happen at any stage of life. But they are particularly acute and heightened, I think, uh, at the later stages uh, of life now i want to throw a different question out to the group here though which is i think one other thing that is very common in primary care which is when you do have older folks come in sometimes what i've found is there's a subset of folks that come in for social visits so in, in essence they're getting their needs met through their medical care and that's an aspect of some of the, the, these cases that i'm referencing here as well where yes i can sit with them provide space for their grieving But there's also sort of a subtext there, an agenda on their part where they're getting their needs met by by coming in and and talking to me and talking to their primary care physician and having a bunch of these medical visits. And I think that's okay, but it doesn't feel like I'm, you know, doing highly specialized what I'm trained to do, clinical psychology type things, you know. <laughs> I can't be the only one having social oh. visits with patients. Oh, maybe I am the only one. Oh no,
2: you're not the only one. <laughs> <laughs> you're not, and I, I just, I don't really have an answer for it. I try to bring it back to something health, helpful every time. I, there is just one precious to me, patient. You know, we don't.
1: Mm-hmm. None of us
2: have favorite patients, but uh, <laughs> this. Uh, lady I've been seeing her off and on since I started in my role so almost six years now and she just loves to it, it their social visits I mean we check in sometimes about her diabetes and her snacking and like her habits but she wants to hear about my boys and see a picture and we visit and she gives me the biggest hug and she says oh now miss Frank how have those boys been doing every time and so she's just very precious to me and so some of those patients I don't know it's a bright spot in my day when I see her on the schedule and I'm always happy to get to go in and there's definitely a special component I don't
1: know for better or worse yeah I, I don't worry about it too much I, I see what you're saying though um as long as you know you keep an eye on it, it's like not every visit but it, it, if that's what they need in that moment and they need that in their life And it's fitting into what we got going on. It's not taking up extra time um, elsewhere. Like if you're spending like twice as long or, you know what I mean? Like making ridiculous Mm -hmm. amount of concessions. And I do look at it um, because I look at things a lot more trans I don't really like, I'm on board with you, Neftali about uh, getting rid of the DSM. But I look at it as in that moment, if I'm socializing with this person, I will talk about things that, they that are important to them and that they follow and for me as a clinician the whole time I'm thinking this is so great that they're keeping up with football or they're keeping up with this or that or that or this show or this movie because that tells me that they're engaged so even if it looks on surface like socializing I never turn off that clinical brain I'm like oh, okay they want to come in they're talking about this this and this in their life so they're engaged in this manner what other ways can we encourage the can I encourage like almost creative outlets so if they're into art or they're into sports or whatever, um, asking them about, well, what are you working on, blah, blah. Again, looks like we're socializing, but with my clinical brain, it's always engagement as the piece. So I don't, maybe that's how I rationalize or justify it for myself. I'm not quite sure.
2: No, so. I love it because there's something else going on behind the scenes and you know, the utility that it's having, even if on the surface, it looks like a different. The other thing that can happen when we're meeting with patients, you know, regularly, socially. One of the great things about the longitudinal relationship of integrated care, I think, is that we can see changes in people over time. So one of the things that can happen that I've been asked to do uh, some from time to time is to help with doing a mini mental status or a mocha or you know, talking to a patient about the family's concerns or, or a patient's family about concerns about whether this older adult is still safe to live at home alone or whether you know it's safe for them to drive or if the memory lapses they're having are normal or a sign of dementia. And those are not things that I feel I can solely in myself with my expertise answer. But our work as a team, and our observations of a person over time, and the really nice blend of the medical expertise of the physicians that I work with, and the you know psychosocial expertise that I bring as a clinician, I think we're able to have these really difficult conversations with patients. Um, And so that's tying back to the social visits. I think one of the things that we can see over time is we may notice that decline because we are interacting and engaging with that person uh, regularly.
3: And, you know, I would like to just take a moment to say, like, as you know, if you're listening as a student or an early career professional, if you're hearing this conversation and you're at all like, you know, Gosh, like I don't, I don't know how to t- talk to old people. Guess what? There's probably a nursing home close by to you that you can go volunteer at, and you can get tons of experience. Um, I know that when I was in school and I really felt like I had had a ton of experience with like children and families and all that kind of stuff. Um, but didn't have a ton of experience talking to anybody other than my own grandparents to, you know, like I said, my mom's British. It's not like she's going to open up to me about like, you know, her intimate life that is like not going to happen. <laughs> um, but you'd be surprised what people will tell you it, you know, over a game of Scrabble at the nursing home, if they have no idea like who you are. Um, it, you know, just go and, and engage with people and get experience that way. And it's also a really great way to kind of enrich your own life and your own experience. And if you haven't called your grandparents lately, pick up the phone and call your grandparents. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's awesome advice, Amber. I'm glad you I'm glad you chimed in with that because uh, it's absolutely true. Um, I, I think that's one take home from today's podcast is really engage this population. Right? And don't be, mm-hmm. be afraid to engage this population. Don't be afraid to explore it. Um, again, I, I found it personally enriching, especially someone in midlife looking ahead of me and thinking, what is it going to be like, you know, to be there? I learn from my patients all the time. And, and Grace, to your point about the longitudinal piece, that piece is so huge to me, uh, just to be able to see the different stages of life, to see folks over time um, and and to leverage that relationship uh, for their benefit, for their family's benefit, especially in these parts of life that have their unique uh, challenges absolutely uh, rewarding uh, essential and also challenging it's challenging you know I'm gonna we're at the end of our time here today but I'll leave us with a little bit of a cliffhanger and Amber this is one maybe you can uh, uh, talk with us at a few about with us at a future podcast given your sort of little specialization in sexuality because the one area that I that I honestly still have struggled with with Older adults is sexuality, like talking about sex with older adults, really difficult for me, and yet super duper important because guess what? Older adults are having sex. Older adults have sexual feelings. They have relationships. They're complicated, just like they are at every other stage of life. <laughs> so, that'll be our cliffhanger. Can you
2: add to that. I think you know yeah. maybe
0: we need to have an episode on just
2: like taboo topics and addressing mm. taboo topics with patients because in addition to talking about sex, another thing I think we frequently don't ask our older adults that we need to is about substance use because mm. their their bodies are not met- metabolizing in the same way and if they are still drinking the way that they used to drink or if they're bored and medicating more or if like. The dear, dear little grandmother in our clinic that you never would have expected that her family called us and said she is drinking so much in the evenings that we're having a hard time waking her up in the morning and everyone in our clinic was like, what? I mean, you just never could have put it together. And so And and I think there's just an added layer of complication of addressing these topics with older adults because we have a sense of respect and a sense of Mm -hmm. uh, maybe deference or not wanting to offend them. And so I think we should just have a whole conversation about taboo
1: topics. I'm here for it. I'm here for it. Substances are in the contextual interview to ask about it. (laughs) <laughs> Drink up! All right.
2: <laughs> I will tease the other thing that I really want us to do this year um, that I will be scheduling out and getting blocked in is I would love for us to do um, special segments with our contributors and hear about something you feel passionate about. So if you want to hear 15 minutes of me interviewing Bridget about the contextual interview and how to do <laughs> it well, that's going to happen. So we're going to plug that now for a future episode. It's
0: going to be coming. Nice. Up. Nice. That's it's a great well, idea, Grace. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, we've got a great year in spite of the fact that uh, the start has been, uh, you know, hit or miss. <laughs> it's all uphill. It's all uphill for me. Or downhill. That's I don't okay. Know what you get to start again
3: in July or August, whatever you yes, decide. Yes, that's right. That's
0: right. <laughs> uh, so, our good friend Deepu George is not here with us, but he did pre-record a sending thought for us. So, Deepu take us away. The following reading is from Rabindranath Tagore from his writing from Fruit Gathering. Let me not pray to be sheltered from dangers, but to be fearless in facing them. Let me not beg for the stilling of my pain, but for the heart to conquer it. Let me not look for allies in life's battlefield
1: but to my own strength. Let me not crave an anxious fear to be saved, but hope for the patience to win my freedom. Grant
0: me that I may not be a coward, feeling your mercy in my success alone, but let me find the grasp of your hand in my failure. Thank you. All right. Thank you all for listening once again for this month's episode of the Integrated Care Podcast. Tune in next month for our next edition. More fun with our podcast team. Bye, everybody.